Wu didn't hear the famous noontime surrender by Emperor Hirohito. Had the Americans landed in Japan? They set quotas for people to provide a certain amount of food. Farm animals, chickens, vegetables. The infamous 228. Here's how it started. Formosa Files is sponsored by the Frank C. Chen Cultural Foundation. Frank Chen, Chen Qi Tuan, served as the mayor of Kaohsiung City from 1960 to 1968 and founded the Kaohsiung Medical College. Formosa Files. Welcome to Formosa Files. Okay, so today we're going to finish a story we started back in Season 1, Episode 29. That was called The Most Powerful Witness to Modern Taiwan's History, Wu Zuo If you haven't listened to that one, I'd recommend doing that first. But, you know, this episode makes sense on its own, so it's not essential. So let's just go over some basic facts here. Wu Zuo was a poet, novelist, journalist... Uh, man of letters and patron of the arts. His lifetime, so he was born in 1900 and died in 1976, and his writing very much highlight the complexity and ambiguity of Taiwanese identity, of Taiwan's uh, anguished relationship with both China and Japan. His famous novel, Orphan of Asia, the story of a Taiwanese man who leaves colonial Taiwan for China but finds that he doesn't belong in his ancestral motherland either. That reflected the author's own experience of going to China. Mm, nostalgia and longing for an idealized place. In this case, an idealized China. Yes, an idealized motherland that couldn't stand up to actually encountering it in reality. So, Eric, does that remind you of anything? Yeah, actually it does. Um... It reminds me of the late 1980s when some of those nationalist veterans, right, the, the, the soldiers mm-hmm. who would come over from China, they're totally Chinese, right, mainlanders. So after decades apart from their relatives, they're finally allowed to go home and visit their hometowns in China. And surprisingly, a huge percentage of these people were generally disappointed with what they experienced. Yes, quite heartbreaking stories. Uh, Waiting 40 years and then finding a decimated country and society with relatives largely interested in getting money from you. Yeah, so many stories about you get to your hometown and like, uh, can you buy me a refrigerator, this, that, and the other? Yeah, it's... Okay, anyway, John, when we left part one, Wu was, until recently, working in Taipei for a newspaper... In his free time, he's written his magnus opus, uh, Orphan of Asia, his book, but he's not preparing for publishing his book. He's preparing for an American invasion of Taiwan. Yes, he started the novel in 1943, finished it early 1945, but the book is in hiding. Although the novel is not what you would classify as a subversive anti-Japan book, Given the stresses of the time, there's enough in its pages to mean big trouble if the authorities had found it. So when people today discuss literary works like Orphan of Asia, it's often to ponder questions of national identity. And fair enough, the author raises those questions. But at that time, when life was tougher, basic survival was his and others' main concern. And of course, the most basic thing we all need is getting enough food. 
Yep, that last summer of 1945 was a lean one. The Japanese authorities requisitioning rice and other food for the military, they set quotas for people to provide a certain amount of food. Farm animals, chickens, vegetables, rice, of course. And with fertilizer, an industrial product, of course, in short supply, the rice harvest was poor. A lot of hungry people. Families were pushed to starvation levels, forced to go foraging for wild plants to supplement their meager diet, or they had to go buy things on the black market, of course, at very inflated prices. Wu Zhuoliao wrote, quote, My own family was in a bad state and frequently ill because of the lack of food. My youngest son almost went blind with vitamin A deficiency. If the war had gone on for another year, several members of the family would not have survived. And rumors of an American landing were filling the air, but that American invasion never came. Wu didn't hear the famous noontime surrender by Emperor Hirohito. That was broadcast on August 15, 1945. But he met a few people who had heard it, and they were kind of scratching their heads. The, the voice wasn't super clear, there was static, and no one had heard Hirohito's voice before, right? Mm -hmm. And so they're wondering, like, okay, wait, had the Americans landed in Japan, or was this real? Did they really surrender? Yeah, so a bit too early to celebrate, you could get into trouble. Mm. At a train station, a special edition newspaper was out, though. Unconditional surrender, it said. Taiwanese had expectation in their faces, but they uh, had to disguise their joy. Wu, who was at his hometown in Shinzu County at the time, went up to Taipei to see what was going on. The Japanese managers had left his newspaper, leaving it in the hands of the old Xingnan Xingwen crew. He got his old job in the editorial department back, and they started printing in Chinese again, but still some articles in Japanese. Taipei was seething with excitement uh, and transformed into a frenzy of color and noise. Wu says that long-hidden lanterns, garlands, and silken banners were brought out and firecrackers let off. Yeah, it's a big moment, something most of us have not experienced and I hope will not experience. But we're talking about a change of sovereignty and of the official language. Mm-hmm. Freed from their 50 years of colonialism, many Taiwanese were in a state of high excitement, eagerly awaiting the arrival of nationalist troops. And the greater happiness is probably from an end to the war, relieved that the horrors of war have gone. But yeah, they're excited about the future too. Committees were set up to welcome the nationalist government to Taiwan, and in all the towns and villages throughout the land, streets and lanes were decorated with colorful arches and celebration. Uh, each doorway had its red lantern and twin scrolls of welcoming verse as the people eagerly awaited the arrival of the army. But we're getting a little ahead of the story. It's a long wait, though about two months before the nationalists come and take over. Yes, so there's a power vacuum. And this vacuum was filled by civil society. Wu writes, quote, In every street and district, three principals youth brigades sprang spontaneously into existence and took upon themselves the task of maintaining public order. Three principals youth brigades. Okay, that's named after a political philosophy developed by Sun Yat-sen. 
Right, the three principles of the people, Sanminjui. Also, the first lines of the ROC national anthem, I could sing. Yes, you could, but um, <laughs> let's not, um, or perhaps later. Um, well, let's tell the people what the three principles are. Usually they're translated as nationalism, democracy, and the livelihood of the people. Um, you'll also notice that these terms are used very frequently in Taiwan for road names or district names, right? Mm -hmm. In Kaohsiung, we have Sanmin District, uh, Mingzu Road, Mingtren, mm -hmm. uh, right? So these youth brigades that were based on the three principles of the people, they were unpaid and not really under supervision, but they apparently did a pretty good job. Yeah, Taiwan enjoyed two months of relative stability during this political vacuum, which seems to be something of an unrecognized achievement. Yeah, I would have expected violence and chaos. Yeah. Uzolio has an explanation for this achievement. He says that psychologically, Taiwanese were making this statement directed at the Japanese that the lowly subjects were better and more civilized than the Japanese had assumed. No, Taiwanese were not inferior, neither culturally or morally, that kind of thing. Hmm, okay. So the Taiwanese citizens policing the country was a way of showing their colonial masters that they were not inferior followers of the rule of law. So then an advanced group of nationalist officers from China arrives on October 5th. Yes, but they weren't quite the first Chinese. Preceding them were businessmen, uh, often conmen looking to make easy money. I Eric, what's the American term? Um, uh, we call them carpetbaggers, and that dates back to the aftermath of the American Civil War. Today, it means like someone who moves from one place to another and doesn't have any roots there. But back in the day, yeah, it was a, uh, an unscrupulous business person of some sort. Okay. But anyway, these advance officials took part in October 10, uh, double 10-day celebrations, the first ever in Taiwan. And this is 1945. Mm -hmm. So then finally, October 17th, also 1945, the National Army finally arrives. Wu Zhou writes that in Taipei, everyone swarmed into the streets. There were school children, college students, Japanese gentlemen, university professors, all standing in line. Every conceivable club and association turned out. There were three principals, youth corps members, and the welcome for the soldiers included a celebration of Chinese culture. For example, traditional Chinese instruments, which had been discouraged under the Japanese for decades. They were brought out now and played with gusto. As soldiers approached, the crowds cheered, waved flags, and cried, Wan Shui, 10,000 years. The noise went on and on without stopping and seemed to rock the very ground we were standing on, Wu says. The people in the crowd frantically shouted, Here they are, the soldiers of the motherland. But Udolio and the others in the crowd were rather underwhelmed when the nationalist soldiers came into a bit of a closer uh, vantage point, the soldiers had shoulder poles strung with woks, cooking utensils, and bedding rolls, you know, like the uh, people who carry water on those poles. Uh, they mm. had their stuff on that. It, it's a, a kind of an ancient look. Yeah, the Taiwanese were used to seeing the well-equipped, orderly troops of the Japanese army, whether Japanese or Taiwanese. So, yes. The appearance of these troops was surprising. Now, it's something of a, a trope, a line of stories, perhaps exaggerated over time, uh, this 
And, you know, the nationalists had been fighting for years and dealing with hyperinflation. So a ragged appearance, it does make some sense. Hu Zhou says that the day after the troops arrived, his newspaper published reports of a Japanese policeman being lynched by a crowd in Da Daochen, that's in Taipei. And that same afternoon, two more Japanese policemen lost their lives. As soon as he heard the news, he rushed over to the newspaper office and pleaded that they not run any more stories, because he thought, with good reason, that it might give people ideas, and if things got out of hand, all hell could break loose. Yes, worst case scenario would be violent mobs attacking Japanese women and kids, and then who knows what would have happened. There were only a few thousand Chinese troops on the island, but perhaps 180,000 regular soldiers of the Japanese army, and that number could almost double if reservists were called upon. On October 24th, General Chen Yi, who deserves his notoriety as a villain, assumed his duties as an administrator general or governor, and on October 25th, the surrender ceremony took place in Taipei. And uh, you and I are old enough to know that we used to celebrate uh, October 25th as Retrocession Day. Mm-hmm. Used to be a public holiday. So this is October 25th, 1945. Celebrations were magnificent. Taiwan was restored to the motherland and liberated from 50 years of colonial existence. Wu Zhou Liao made a secret wish to himself. From today onwards, he would work to make Taiwan an even finer place than it was during the Japanese occupation. Things, however, would not run smoothly. Recovery from the destruction and upheaval of war, it's hard enough in peacetime, but the nationalists are still engaged in a civil war with the communists over in China. The nationalist soldiers, Wu says, treated Taiwan as if it were another combat zone, enemy territory. Quote, they borrowed things and did not return them. That's also generally known as stealing. Yep. And, quote, they took over temples and public property and walked into people's homes to steal their chickens. They saw movies and plays without paying for them and walked out of restaurants without paying their bills. And while behaving in this uncivilized manner, they claimed to be heroes and boasted about their exploits. And the economic situation got worse. Inflation, unemployment, the Chinese nationalists taking over businesses, food and industrial machines, you know, the stuff you need to produce stuff were being stripped and then sent back to China, often ending up on the black market. Shop shelves were empty and the harvests were poor. But Wu wasn't too bad off. He was writing articles and short stories for newspapers and magazines. And his novel, Orphan of Asia, was published in 1946, and it sold well. It was published in Taiwan. Uh, yes, uh, and later that year in Japan, uh, both places in uh, the Japanese language. Uh, he'd written it in Japanese. The Chinese edition would come much, much later. A few days before the first anniversary of Restoration, so that would be uh, October 25th, 1946, he was told he was being laid off. The newspaper Bao was discontinuing its Japanese pages by order of the government. But he soon got another editing job at a different paper, the Minbao. Uh, I guess that translates to what? People's Daily. Mm-hmm. February 1947 started badly. Uh, there were increasing prices, especially of rice, rice shortages. 
And on February 14th, Taipei's rice market closed briefly because of a riot. Citizens struggling for the last few grains of rice and at ever-increasing prices. It was a really desperate situation. And such desperate situations, all you need is a spark. Yes, and that came on the 27th. Wu was working at the newspaper on the evening of February 27th when a reporter came in with the news that there had been an altercation. So most people will know by this point that we are talking about here at the beginning of the infamous 228 killings massacre incident, however it's described. Here's how it started. On the evening of February 27th, 1947, a tobacco monopoly bureau enforcement team in Taipei went to the district of Da Daotan, where they confiscated contraband cigarettes from a 40-year-old widow. She struggled with them, and then she was struck to the ground. The surrounding Taiwanese crowd stepped in to challenge the agents, and the agents then fled. But as they fled, one agent shot his gun into the crowd, hitting a bystander who died the next day. And it was the next day, February 28th, that things exploded. Protesters gathered the next morning around Taipei, calling for the arrest and trial of the agents involved in the previous day's shooting, and eventually made their way to the governor general's office, where security forces tried to disperse the crowd, but soldiers opened fire into the crowd, killing at least three people. In the following days, there was a there was an orgy of violence, uh, Taiwanese taking over the administration of places and attacks on mainlanders and, of course, soldiers shooting local people. And these uprisings are not just Taipei. This is uh, throughout the island. Martial law was declared, of course, but uh, there weren't really enough soldiers to enforce it. And yeah, for a while, Taiwanese civilians controlled much of Taiwan. Yeah, I think it's important what you said there. Uprisings erupting all through the island. We think of it sometimes as only a Taipei thing, but mm-hmm. there were gun battles in Kaohsiung. There, there was even stuff reported in Penghu. Yeah, Jai was another hotspot. Mm. Mm. So following the initial violence, there was a period of calm. Civilian groups of Taiwanese took control. Meanwhile, local Taiwanese leaders formed settlement committees or resolution committees. And these committees presented the government with a list of reforms that needed to be done so that the provincial administration could get back to running the the province. During this brief period of calm in the first week of March, Governor Chen Yi promised concessions. I think it was amnesty for those involved, compensation for victims, and importantly, structural changes to administering the island. Taiwanese would get positions in government. Uh, There'd be an easing of taxation and so on. Chen Yi, however, was a snake. He was buying time. Yes, buying time for military reinforcements. And upon their arrival on March 8th, the ROC troops launched a bloody crackdown. Days of indiscriminate killing and arrest. Well, some of the killings were random, but others were systematic. There were lists, lists of people. Taiwanese political leaders were amongst those targeted for imprisonment and execution. For this episode, we're drawing on Wu Zolio's memoir, The Fig Tree, published two decades later, and once again in Japanese. 228 was a forbidden topic well into the 1980s, even beyond. 
much like the Tiananmen protests of 1989 are today in China. And the author, Udolio, he takes a very cautious approach in his book, The Fig Tree. Yes, he uses long quotes from other sources and a roundabout approach. He looks at the situation leading up to the rebellion and crackdown, and we're following his lead with this. After 1947, he stopped doing newspaper work and served as a director at a school, but he kept up his literary interests. In 1964, he co-founded the Taiwan Literature and Art magazine, which served as a starting point for many of Taiwan's young, aspiring writers. And soon after, using his own money, he established the Taiwan Literature Award, which was later renamed the Wu Zhou Literary Award. And during those later years, he wrote two autobiographies, The Fig Tree, and when it came out, it was banned due to its description of the 228 incident and uh, did not reappear until the late 1980s after martial law was lifted. He died before that. He died in 1976. He would write another autobiographical account, the Taiwanese for Scythia, and that's uh, the scientific plant title of the Golden Dewdrop. And again, he wrote in Japanese for fear of um, you know, repercussions from the new KMT rulers. And it was only intended for publication in a more open future. It would be published after his death. Yes. The Taiwanese for Scythia is a stronger book. It's not available in English as yet. One of the explosive areas of attack in the book is the role of Taiwanese mainlanders in the post-war chaos and 228. Okay, so this is interesting. Taiwanese mainlanders, China-based Taiwanese. So either they were in Chiang Kai-shek's wartime capital of Chongqing or in Japanese-occupied China. These folks, these Taiwanese mainlanders, were disparagingly referred to as Banshan, literally half mountain, but it kind of means, you know, semi-mainlander. Udolio describes them as ambitious, greedy, and unscrupulous. Yeah, speaking Mandarin and Taiwanese, they were able to be middlemen, a lucrative position, playing both sides, getting rich, and Wu blames them for providing some of the names for the lists of Taiwanese intellectuals who would be killed in March of 1947. Hmm. Some of these Banshan uh, Taiwanese mainlanders were, of course, committed to a better Taiwan, and some of them would be imprisoned or even executed for resistance to nationalist rule. But John, we're uh, running out of time. Um, any last thoughts or book recommendations? Two books, Orphan of Asia, published by Columbia University Press. There's the autobiography, The Fig Tree, Memoirs of a Taiwanese Patriot, translated by Duncan Hunter. Please visit formosafiles.com. I'll, I'll put links to all of what we can find up there. Also, there's a couple of places related to the author we can visit today. There's the Udolio Art and Cultural Hall, which is in Xihu, Miaoli County. It was closed for renovation when I visited, but yeah, a very nice countryside around the area. And then there's his family residence, which has been restored and renovated and is now a memorial museum. That's located in Xingzhu's Xingpu Township. Yes, I've been there. It's a traditional Hakka courtyard building, well worth a visit. 
a nice building on its own terms, even without the added significance of its former inhabitant. There are pictures and artifacts related to this pioneering author, but also his nephew, Wu Zaishi, who was an officer of the Air Force's 35th Reconnaissance Squadron, commonly known as... Oh yeah, the Black Cat Squadron. Right, uh, not to be confused with another recon squadron, the Black Bats. Yeah, we've talked about the Black Cats and the Black Bats, I think, but the Black Cats were more specialized. High-altitude reconnaissance over enemy territory in U-2 spy planes. Yes, and Wu's nephew died in a 1966 flight training mission. Wow, okay. What a distinguished family. Okay, well, we've got to sign off, but do visit formosafiles.com. I try to post pretty much everything I can find online in English about the stuff that we talked about. So we've got book links, pictures, maps, all kinds of stuff. And um, yeah, check it out. Thanks for listening. I'm Eric Michael Smith. I'm John Ross. Bye.